0: Welcome to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we are honored that you would choose to spend a Sunday morning worshiping with us. Um, if you're a guest with us, I just want to say again, uh, thanks for coming, and if I haven't got a chance to meet you, I would love to get the opportunity to meet you uh, face-to-face. So if you have the time afterwards, stick around. I would love um, to get to know you a bit. We're continuing on in our series where we're walking through uh, the gospel Of John, and we find ourselves today in the middle of chapter 5, in the middle of chapter 5, like Logan just read. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in um, to the text. Father, I'm thankful for your word, as always. I'm thankful that um, when we go verse by verse through the scriptures and passage by passage, we don't have to... Um, week in and week out, figure out what we're going to teach and figure out where we're going to go in the scriptures, Um, we're thankful for that. We're thankful that your word is sufficient, it's clear, um, it's profitable for all teaching. And so we trust you this morning and trust your spirit that you would move through your word and you'd move in our lives to change our minds and our hearts and change the way we live when we leave this place. And above everything else, I pray that your son would be glorified and honored today it's in his name we pray amen I want to start um, today and you'll see here in a minute for context purposes reading um, a a passage from the book of Ezekiel it's the prophet Ezekiel it's that it's that book and it's in the chapter one and the verses will be on the screens but I want you to really concentrate on closing your eyes um, if, if you want to, or you can read. But I really want you to, to visualize what Ezekiel sees in this vision. I want you to be able to, to try to wrap your minds around what Ezekiel was seeing when he saw what he saw that's recorded in this book. And what he saw of, of God in this vision would, would make um, every Hollywood director and producer jealous about how the things that Ezekiel saw. It's crazy, and it's out there, but Ezekiel is truly um, trying to describe and explain what he saw. And it's going to inform us in this text we're going to look at today in John. So we're starting Ezekiel 1, verse 4. This is Ezekiel talking. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it. And fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides, they had human hands. And the four that had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies." And each went straight forward, wherever the spirit would go, they went without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. And we'll skip a few verses down to 26. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne. In appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne, was a likeness with human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw it was as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the, had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So it was the appearance of brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. And he said to me, son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. So this was a vision, crazy, right? Like this is crazy stuff that Ezekiel's seeing here. But the purpose of this is Ezekiel's trying to wrap his mind around seeing God. This is a vision of God and, and the beings surrounding him and, and, and Jesus falling and speaking to Jesus here. He says, son of man, he's speaking to Jesus there at the end. And this was the imagery that the people in the Old Testament, the Jewish people, would have had of God. The, there's other occasions like this where people see God and they try to describe him. They try to, try to, uh, try to help others understand what they're seeing and the Jewish people would have known these stories well. So much so was the reverence and fear for God that when the scribes were writing, were writing things down and they would come to the divine name of God, Yahweh, they would, they would stop and go wash their hands and then come back and write that word. That's how kind of holy and revered this word was. And even if a king came, if they started to write the word Yahweh, and even a king came in and wanted their attention to to stop, they couldn't stop. Like once they started writing the name Yahweh, they had to finish it before they did anything else. So this is the context, this is the background from which Jesus is is kind of interacting with the Jewish leaders um, in this scenario in the book of John. But today we're going to see that Jesus comes to reveal the Father, and he reveals him primarily through his obedience and his love. Jesus has come to reveal the Father, and he, he does that through his obedience and love. Let's look at verse 17 of John 5. Going over to John 5 now. This is to, to kind of connect what we talked about two weeks ago, because we, we, we weren't in the text last week, but two weeks ago, um, we looked at, when Jesus healed the man at the pool, he healed on the Sabbath. The religious leaders didn't like that. They were upset. And they kind of come after Jesus for that. And he says in verse 17, my father, in response to that, is working until now, and I am working. Now bells and antennas would have gone off amongst the Jewish leaders because what Jesus is doing here is he's saying he is the son of God. He has this unique relationship with God that no one else has and we see in verse 18 it says this is why the jews were seeking all the more to kill him so it wasn't just the sabbath that really frustrated them healing on the sabbath but then he 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 claims to be the son of god you see at the at the, the second half of verse 18 because not only was he breaking the sabbath but he was even calling god his own father making himself equal with god So this is the claim, right? This is the claim, more than any other claim, that got Jesus in trouble in his his ministry on earth, claiming to be God. And in this occasion, claiming to be the Son of God, but we'll get into those differences here in a second. But really the question here is, in what sense is Jesus equal to God? In what sense is Jesus equal to to God? And this takes us into one of the most important Ideas and truths in all of the scripture, and that is of the Trinity. It's kind of hard to understand, hard to wrap our minds around, and we try to put it together from different places in, in the scriptures, but this leads us into talking about the Trinity. So I wanted to give us a kind of a definition of the Trinity. It'll be up here. The doctrine of the Trinity means that there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons one God, three persons. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or to state it differently, God is one in essence and three in person. And those, these, these definitions express really three truths, or any definitions of the Trinity should, should have these three elements. The Father and Son are, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons, they are distinct between one another. But each one is fully God, and there is only one God, right? which again, trying to put those three things together to make sense is difficult. It's difficult, it starts to hurt your head, you go around in circles, but for 2,000 years the church has has really affirmed this and said this is what the scripture teaches about the nature of God. D.A. Carson says this about what Jesus is about to do in this passage, Jesus is not equal to God as another God or as a competing God, the functional subordination of the Son to the Father. The utter dependence of the Son upon the Father are about to be explicated or explained here. Okay, And we'll get into that here in a second. Here are the four things that we're going to walk through today. Number one, Jesus has come to reveal the Father. Two, he does this, he's able to do this because God loves him. We'll talk about that here in a second. The role of the Son, um, we're going to look into that as well. God gives roles to the Son, that's the third thing. And fourth, what our response should be. There's a few places in this passage where Jesus, um, where John wants us to respond as he writes Jesus' words down. So number one, Jesus has come to reveal the Father. Verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. It's a massive statement. I want to say that again. This is This is huge. The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Now, this begins in verse 19, the defense Jesus is making for the claim that, is wanting, that they are wanting to kill him for, okay? So he goes, yes, I'm saying I am God, right? And here's my explanation of that, okay? So he says this, and he begins with this truly, truly kind of... Uh, a preface there, and this is the one of three occasions where we see this in this passage. Truly, truly, meaning, listen to this. This is important. Pay attention what I'm about to say. This is what Jesus is trying to communicate here. And notice that he is he is being confident here, right? Jesus is saying, "Yeah, I am. I am God. Truly, truly, city, the Son. So I am the Son of God." Very confident statement. But then he's also humble. He says. The son can do nothing of his own accord, only what he sees the father doing. So you see their response. They are trying to kind of throw this idea of equality at Jesus. You're saying you're equal to God. And that is what Jesus is saying, but there's more nuance to that. And that is what Jesus is trying to communicate here. He sees this more as being united with God as equals, there, there, there's, there's a unity there that he has, not as a God the Father is equal to God the Son in all ways. So it's not equal in the sense we often think equal. There is some equality there, but it's really he's saying that he's unified with God the Father. Right? And Jesus counters by quickly showing that he's saying, I can do nothing um, unless I see it done by the Father. Right? I can do nothing until I see the Father do it. So once again, he's showing confidence and humility. As one commentator put it, he's showing majesty, being God's son, but also modesty and saying, I can do nothing apart from what the father does. And then we see this, this idea of this for statement, or in, in Greek, it's, it's gar, that, that's a, a connector statement. It's, it's, it's meaning that for whatever the father does, the son does that Likewise, right? And you see that that word gar or for happen three more times in the next couple of verses. This is why I highlight it. So number one, Jesus reveals the Father. He's clearly saying, I'm unified with the Father. I'm equal in in, in one sense to the Father. I am the Son of the Father. I am God. Now, verse 20, we're going to look at the second thing. Why does Jesus do this? Or how is Jesus capable of doing this? Verse 20. For, there's that guard statement again, for, or because of, the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Why is Jesus able to reveal the Father? Why does he want and desire to reveal the Father? Because the Father loves him. It says it in verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things, right? This is the the basis for the son's dependence and obedience working through love, is God's love for him first. So here's what's important for us. We got to be careful to separate too much the work of the father and the work of the son. I've heard um, Christians and Christianity and the scriptures criticized a lot by thinking of that the God the Father was up there and he needed like the sacrifice to be made so he sends his only son, only begotten son, to the slaughter in order to die a horrible death on the cross. And I've heard people say, Well, how do you how can you follow such a horrible God that's a father that would send his only begotten son to the slaughter? How could you possibly love and worship that kind of God? And that is a complete misunderstanding of the Trinity and the nature of the Trinity. What we just talked about, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. God the Father was right there with Jesus. Remember, they're unified. He was right there with Jesus and shared every bit of the sacrifice, of the pain, and the love, and the suffering, and the humiliation that Jesus experienced. The Father was right there with the Son. Again, the son can do nothing of his own accord. This means that the father had to be with Jesus in a sense when Jesus went to the cross. So it's not the father sending the son off to die this horrific death. Yes, the father sends the son, but the father goes with the son and experiences the same things as God that the son did. The father loves the son. And as a result, the son loves the father. And it's not simply that the son chooses to act, um, chooses not to act in independence of the Father. He can't act in independence of the Father. He can't do anything apart from what he sees God doing. He can only do the things he sees the Father doing. There's a continual communion and, and, and relationship between the Father and the Son. There has to be. For Jesus to only be able to do these things, they have to be connected and communing in an intimate way. It's a special relationship. And this takes us back. There's massive implications for this. You go back to Genesis when it says, let us, plural, make man in our own image. And we know from looking at Genesis, that was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. There, before creation, creating man and woman in their image. So this is the reason why we Call, um, call you all to community so much. This is why we call the church is a family. We're called to be together, to fellowship together, to spend time together. This is the foundation for that. There wouldn't be a thing such... I'm sure we've all felt loneliness at some occasion in our life. There would be no loneliness. That would even be a thing if it wasn't for this because we were hardwired by God's creation in his image, these, this, this community that the Trinity had, We are wired for community. So when we're lonely, that's a a result of this. Because we know there's this ache that we should be around people. We we want people to love us. We want to be able to love other people. That's part of being a human being. And that's, that's I think, a proof for the existence of God. The fact that humans get... Lonely. If it wasn't for this, if we were made uh, in the image of just, just one of the members of the Trinity and they didn't have community together, we, we might be able to exist apart from anyone else for our whole lives. But that is not the way God has made us. Again, Jesus has come to reveal the Father through His love and obedience. Let's look at the third aspect: the Son's given roles as the result of Him coming um, as a as a revealer of who god is verse 21 for as the father raises the dead and gives them life so also the son gives life to whom will so they're both life givers the father has chosen to give the son this role of being a life giver this is spiritual life when we become christians he the, they, the, the, the god awakens something in us there's a new creation that's formed when we become followers of jesus but it's also new life in the resurrection when we die that God sets up the new heavens and the new earth and we're raised in bodily form to experience and live in the new heavens and new earth. That is Jesus is doing. It's also God's doing. God, it says there in verse twenty. For the Father raises the dead and gives them life. But Jesus is taking part in that with His Father. And look at verse twenty-two. Here's another role that the Father gives to Jesus. For the Father judges no one. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So the Father has stepped out of the role of judge and given that role, that title of judge to Jesus. Why? Verse 23. So that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So when we want nothing to do with Jesus, we turn our backs on Jesus, we don't believe in Jesus, we are dishonoring the Son, and therefore we are dishonoring God the Father. They're connected. So one of the reasons why it says that, that Jesus is given this role of judge is so people would honor him, in the same way that they honor God the Father. Right? The, the honor is connected here because they are unified. Right? And we can see, this is a, another great example of the Son's dependence upon the Father. The father delegates or gives the son this role of judge. And Jesus Christ will judge the whole world. He is the judge. And so if if we think of Jesus and we think of him as savior, great. Teacher, great. Healer, great. Friend, great. But we also should think of him as judge. Because it's clear that God has given him the role of judge. He's given him um, the ability to judge the whole world. And he'll come back one day, not in the same way he left, as a victim who was humiliated and accused and mistreated um, on the cross. One day he will come back as a king and he will judge. It's the same Jesus, but he's coming back in a different way, with a different posture the next time he comes back. So with, with all the truth and gentleness I can tell you, everyone in this room, we will all be judged by Jesus one day in the future. All of us, all human beings who've ever lived at all time and all places will be judged by Jesus. This may seem narrow, right? This seems maybe seems narrow that that we're, that, that Christianity has this, this, this place where all humanity is judged. Um, but again, we've talked about this before, Christianity is wide in the sense that any kind of person can come. All tribes, all tongues, all nations from any, any kind of past, anything you've done in your past, whatever it is, all kinds of people can come. It's very wide in that sense. But the way you get to God, it's very narrow. It's only through Jesus. Only through Jesus Christ can you come into a relationship with the Father. But Christianity isn't the only thing that's narrow. The only worldview world view or belief system that's narrow. Take atheism, for example. Atheism is narrow because you can't be an atheist unless you believe there is no God. When you say there is no God and I'm certain of that and I am an atheist, you are making a very exclusive claim to anybody else who may think there's a God. So any belief system, any kind of faith is narrow because of its its foundation. You wouldn't have a faith, you wouldn't have a belief system if there wasn't some narrowness to that. And another aspect of this is that we, we, we want Jesus to be judged because all of us want evil deeds judged. Now maybe we will different, differentiate on, on what is evil and what should be judged, on how much it should be judged, but we all have this internal... Um, kind of primal thing that wants wrongs taken care of we want to be judged fairly we don't want to we don't we don't want to be judged harshly or unfairly we want that but we definitely want evil dealt with when something somebody wrongs you oftentimes your your first instinct is to react like you you wronged me that was wrong i'm going to stand up for myself we see things on the news and we read about things. We read, read about the marginalized and the people who don't have a voice and the people that don't have power being taken advantage of by those who, who do have power and those kinds of things. And it makes us mad. It frustrates us. Well, what is, where does that come from? Where does that, that, that compass of we want evil to be dealt with, it comes because we're made in God's image. And God is a judge. He's given that role to Jesus. And there will be one day where Jesus judges All the evil that's been done in the world. Which is one of the things that I think allows Christians to rest and not take that judge role in our own hands. We can rest knowing that there will be a day where all evil will be judged and this is the one who will be judged by, Jesus Christ. So we don't have to take that into our hands. We can let Jesus be the judge. But we're thankful for judgment, right? If there was no judge... If we had no hope that all the evil would be judged one day, how awful would that be? It'd probably make us take that judgment into our own hands more. If we knew that evil was never going to be dealt with, that would be an awful place to live. But if you're not a follower of Jesus and you don't believe he's judged, I don't know what you do with that, right? I don't know what you do with those evil feelings, right? Who's going to judge that? And we know we can't put all the faith in the judicial system in different nations, right? It's it's imperfect. It's not going to get things right all the time. Lastly, our response, okay? So Jesus has been given the role of, of life-giver and judge, and now we move to our response. Look at verse 24. Here it is again. Truly, truly, Jesus is saying, pay attention. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. I'm gonna read that again. This, is, this, should, this should fill us with hope, if we if we are christians in this room truly truly i say to you whoever hears my word and believes in him has faith is united to him has eternal life he does not come into judgment but is passed from death to life he's passed that judgment of jesus right and this is the good news of the gospel We pass from death to life. We don't have to worry and be afraid about the judgment of Jesus anymore. It's an opportunity now to see our Lord and Savior, and we know that we will pass that judgment. And that is good news, and that that judgment will take us from death into life and eternal life. This is where our adoption takes place fully. Our inheritance takes place fully. But it's not just a future-oriented thing. When we tend to think of eternal life, we often think of future future, in a, in a quantity of time, like it'll last forever in the future. And that's absolutely true. That is true. But we often miss, it can also be translated a deeper life. So there's a qualitative element to eternal life as well that is kind of often missed in the English translation of eternal life. It's not just quantity of how long, but it's the quality, the depth of the life that we have offered to us in jesus and we have this life now the the the, this verse which is a really cool interesting thing but it says truly truly i say to you whoever hears my words and believes who sent me has get that has eternal life in the present not will have eternal life has it now if you believe in jesus there's an element that you have your eternal life now you, you, you possess it. There's a depth there. You have an inheritance waiting for you now. You're a child of God now, not just when you die or when Jesus comes back. That is true. It will last forever. It is indefinite, but it is deeper and more to that, and I want us to see that. We can look forward and anticipate this day as Jesus as judge. And he goes on. He gives a more a kind of full description of what's going to happen. Verse 25, truly, truly, there it is again. and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. John Calvin um, says this about verse 29, kind of a hard verse to understand. He says this Jesus marks out believers by their good works, just as elsewhere he says that a tree is known by the fruit. And he does this to exhort his own people to holiness and innocence. And indeed, we do not deny that the faith which justifies is joined to a desire to live well and rightly. Only we teach that our confidence can be placed nowhere but in the mercy of God alone. The verse 29 nine it's it's a warning, right? There's a a little bit of warning that comes with this passage. And there are these warning passages all throughout the scriptures. And and they exist to, to cause reflection in God's people. They exist to cause us to think about our faith, take evaluation of our faith, and, and think about the fruit we're bearing for God. But this is not saying that we're saved by works. We're saved by grace for works. It's the way the Bible teaches that. There is assurance in this passage, but there's also some warnings. So passages like this should cause us to reflect a little bit, reflect on our faith, Reflect on why we believe and reflect on the fruit we're bearing in our lives. But I want to focus on the end of verse 28 and in verse 29. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. We just need to like let that sink in. That imagery of the dead will rise. The dead will rise. On that day, and this is all human beings who have ever lived, right? On that day, the dead will rise and answer answer to Jesus. Muhammad will answer to Jesus. Karl Marx will answer to Jesus. Plato will answer to Jesus. The Dalai Lama will answer to Jesus. All human beings who have ever lived will answer to Jesus. And you and I will answer to Jesus as well. And the only way to be reconciled to God who created you is through Jesus. There's no other way no other way. Every human being that has ever lived will either be resurrected to life in the new heavens and the new earth or will be resurrected to eternal torment, which is being separated from God for all eternity. That's that's the two paths that humanity is going down. Jesus has come to reveal the Father and he does this through his love and obedience, but we have um a response. We have a response, and, and, and John shows us how we should respond. Jesus is God, and you can't say you believe in God and say you don't believe in Jesus because they're one and the same. They're united. They're equal in ways. You can't say, I believe Jesus as teacher or healer or friend and not see him as God who is life, giver of life, and also the judge. With all that being said, okay, think of the majesty that Jesus has as God. That image that Ezekiel had of the throne room of God and God sitting on his throne and just how mind-blowing that is. Which is why they were so frustrated. They wanted to kill Jesus because Jesus was claiming to be that God full of glory and honor and worship. They were mad and they were frustrated. But we know that Jesus was, in fact, God. But that's not the greatest thing he ever did. That's not his greatest glory. The crazy thing is, his greatest glory is that, he, that, that, that Philippians 2, Paul says, that he didn't count that equality with God to be grasped. He didn't hold on to it. He didn't say, no, I don't want to go down there on earth and, and, and suffer what I'm going to suffer. No, he, he, he let it go, and he, and he came to earth. He made himself nothing by suffering to the point of death, death on a cross, He stooped so low that he would come down from heaven to earth to redeem, rescue, and save people that wanted absolutely nothing to do with him. And he was God. And he went through suffering and pain and torture to redeem and bring back sinners like you and I, bring back them into a relationship with God. That is what's crazy about this. More than just Jesus claiming to be God, that yes, he was God and he stooped so low to die for sinners like you and I. So if you're a follower of Jesus, this should cause you to well up with worship and honor and praise and love for your savior, that he did this. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, I would say receive him now. Believe in him, put your faith in him. And even if you don't know what to say or don't have the words to say, it doesn't matter. He likes to save, pe- save people who don't know what to say. It's a matter of your heart. And do your best to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And he will save you. I think about, if you were here last week, the testimonies that we heard last week in the baptisms. Over and over and over. I had no way. I had no hope. I was at the end of my rope. I tried everything and nothing worked. So I humbled myself and put my faith in Jesus and trusted him as my Savior. And that's what I would ask you to do now. Application points. Here's, I think, three things that, is, that are briefly mentioned here I want, us, I want us to see. Verse 24 says, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes me. There's two things right there, right? Whoever hears my words, right? And as followers of Jesus, we have God's word, that Jesus, God reveals himself in his word, and when, so Jesus reveals himself in the word. So the way we hear Jesus, it begins with our, our practices um, with Jesus, with God. Maybe that's reading the scripture and listening to what the Holy Spirit wants to teach you as you read the scripture. Maybe it's praying. When you pray, often, oftentimes those of us, and I'm guilty of this as well, when I sit down to pray, I'm the one who's doing most of the talking. I have my list, I have my kind of acronym I'm going through or whatever, but in a normal healthy conversation, there's a back and forth between people, right? There's a, there's a speaking and then there's a listening and actually hearing what the other person's going to say and then, a, and then a talking portion again. So I encourage you, this, this, I don't think it's an accident that he's saying, here's my word, like, what does that really mean, right? Who, everyone who hears my word. So we need to be hearers of the word consistently and believers, right? And it says, and believes in him, believes in his promises, everything we just read today. There's so much packed into this passage. Just the, the idea of the Trinity alone, you could sit there and study it and wrestle with it, and it should cause you to believe more in him and want to understand more about this God. And the last thing it says, it says a couple times to marvel, right? And that just means be amazed at, be in wonder at. So we're to hear, we're to believe, and we're to marvel. We're to worship. We're to be left speechless, breathless. So when's the last time you were left speechless or breathless when it came to God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit? I would encourage you to find, you know yourself, right? You know maybe there's different aspects. Maybe it's music, maybe it's reading the word, maybe it's being outside nature and contemplating his creation. Whatever it is, be marveled. Be marveled at who Jesus is. And more than anything, marvel that this person who was seen by Ezekiel in that vision would come down and live on this broken often terrible world and die a horrible death when he was perfect for people who didn't care about him at the moment marvel at that like how could he love us sinners so much that he did this it's mind-blowing when we think about it i want to read this quote from c.s lewis at the end of the last battle um the chronicles of Narnia, the last battle and it'll be up here so you can follow along you do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be," said Aslin. Lucy said, "We do afraid we're too afraid of being sent away, Aslin, and you have sent us back into our own world so often. "No fear of that," said Aslin. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leaped and a wild hope rose within them. "There was a railway, a real railway accident," said Aslin softly. "Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it, in the shadowlands dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun the dream is ended, this is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. This is Lewis talking here, happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All of their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at least they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before it. See, Aslan wasn't even concerned with like this, this death that they, they suffered. He was just looking at the next thing. Oh, no, that's just the title page. Like we're starting the story now. When you die, when Jesus comes back, that is the beginning of the story. We're going to sing a song after we take communion. And when we sing this song, we're going to sing Tis So Sweet again. And when, I, when you sing this song, I want you to be filled with hope that when you pass away, die, Jesus returns, that that is actually the beginning of the great story, according to C.S. Lewis in the, in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, right? So we can be filled with hope. We can let go of some of the anxieties we, we fret about here on earth. The worries, the fears, the concerns, how I look, the approval, the control, all of those things because we know what the next chapter of the story is. So I want us to sing in that way. I want us to hear, I want us to believe, I want us to marvel as we sing that final song. And here's the last verse of that song, kind of speaks directly to this. I'm so glad I learned to trust thee, precious Jesus, Savior and friend, and I know that thou art with me and wilt wilt be with me to the end let's pray father we can love you we're thankful for you we're thankful in your infinite wisdom that you chose to send jesus to earth that you that you uh designed that and orchestrated that and we're thankful for the son's obedience and love that he came to earth And we're thankful for your spirit, that your spirit continues to work today, work through your word, work in our hearts, work in the world to bring people and to heal people and to make things right. And we're thankful for this idea of the Trinity that's really mind-blowing when we start thinking about it, but also so beautiful. We see three persons, yet one God. I pray that we would hear you to a greater degree. I pray that we would believe you deeper, and I pray that we would marvel at you more if we're not currently amazed with you consistently in our lives now. And as a result of all those things, I pray you would change us to look more like your son. And We love you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.